people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Мне один купейный до Москвы. Билетов нет. Да мне все равно какой, свой плацкартный. Никаких нет. А где у вас начальник вокзала? Начальник не поможет. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also joining us is Mr. Alistair Pitts. I just want to get back to Moscow. Is that all right? Can I just get back to Moscow? Actually, come to think about it, maybe now isn't the best time. On this special episode, we are discussing the 1989 film from Karen Shaknazarov, Zero City. The film stars Leonid Filatov as Aleski Varakin. He's from a Moscow mechanical plant and comes to a small town to meet with a man about air conditioners. He soon finds himself in an absurdist nightmare where he served a cake that looks like his own head by a chef. Is it cake? Who is not his father and maybe commit suicide? We'll have to find out. This is another one of those where it may actually help to hear this episode before you see the film, which is now available via Vinegar Syndrome and Deaf Crocodile Films. So, Alistair, when was the first time you saw Zero Grad and what did you think? I've known about this film probably since 
I was living in Moscow about eight years ago at this point, but it was only a, a few months ago when I saw that Death Crocodile were bringing out this new version that I finally got around to seeing it. But that image of of that head cake on that plate st- stuck in my mind. So I've been curious about it for nearly a decade and I finally got to see it. And yeah, it just blew me away with how just weird and strange and unsettling it is. And Sam, how about yourself? So this is another one that I had known about for much longer than I actually got around to seeing it because it popped up on some lists of Kafka-esque cinema that I saw and sort of like absurdist cinema. A lot of these films that are described as being kind of Kafka-esque usually let me down. But this is one that I think really just lives up to its reputation and is so wonderfully surreal and absurdist and has so many great performances in it. Like you, I had seen this on a list as well. I don't remember which one it was. It might have been like Soviet films that you need to check out. And I want to say Amphibian Man was on there. I know we talked about that one earlier in 2022, Alistair. I didn't see the picture with the head cake, but I did see the picture with him in the museum with the head in the glass case. And that kind of disembodied head thing, I'm always into for whatever reason from, you know, the brain that wouldn't die, all of these like disembodied. And it looks like that head is about to talk because the way that the museum scene is shot. And we'll definitely talk about that. Oh, yeah. The way those eyes are just staring straight ahead, like this sort of slightly mournful quality. I guess I'd be mournful amongst other things, I suspect, if I just... (laughs) Being decapitated and uh, taxidermied or whatever's happened there. But yeah, such a striking image. And I'm so glad to have seen this movie now. And yeah, it was kind of the same thing. Once I heard that Def Crocodile was putting this out, I was just like, okay, I really, I just need to watch this. And then Sam, when I heard that you were doing the commentary for it, I was like, all right, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. And then I think, uh, Alistair, you were the one who was just like, hey, check this out. And I was like, all right, all of these elements all coming together. And it was like, all right, let's do it. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad to have finally seen this film and it lives up to everything that I had in the version in my head, you know, how much I would enjoy this. I was really reminded a lot of Hourglass Sanatorium when I was watching this. I think that also has not necessarily a museum, but there's some wax figures that are definitely just people with kind of heavy makeup on. And just that idea of being trapped in a space. I mean, this this kind of movie just really appeals to me. Kind of like you, Sam, with the absurdist thing, the Kafka-esque. I just really always enjoy that because it makes me feel uneasy. It's kind of horrific, but it's not super scary. It's more just the, the creep factor of things. And our main character comes in and is introduced to the city. Everything looks okay at first. And within the first five minutes, I think, is when he's walking into the mechanical engineer's office and there's the naked secretary and you're just like okay what am i in for now there are certain things about this that remind me of two movies that we talked about earlier this year the two versions of black lizard which also have those great kind of living statues that are just so much creepier than any kind of like artificial or actual wax figure you could design and so much of what's going on here is funny and surreal but 
on some level, it does almost dip into horror movie territory. Well, I think on your commentary, you talked a little bit about uh, The Tenant. It kind of reminded me of The Tenant a bit. It reminded me of Frantic as well. This whole thing of, oh, no, we never saw your wife come in here. All the, these ones where you just feel, you feel like you're being gaslit, like you're being crazy. And it's just like, I'm just trying to get home. Let me just get home. And it's like, oh, sure, sure. Grab a ride with this guy and he'll take you there. And then the road ends or it's overgrown or there is no train station around here. And it's like you, they're just making him feel crazy. And I think that they just are, they being the townspeople are just, they keep doing that over and over again until he decides that he's going to go along with this very reluctantly. The element of gaslighting, I think, does remind me so much of something like Kafka's The Trial, or even more so, this has major vibes of the castle, where everyone just has this attitude of like, well, yes, this is just the way things are. Like, how do you not know that? And even that scene at the beginning you mentioned where he goes in to talk to the 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 head of the company and there's just this naked secretary and he informs the guy like did you know that your secretary is out there naked and the guy and just instead of saying no she's not or yes that's totally normal he gets this very serious look on his face like hmm she's doing that again is she (laughs) (laughs) it's so good and then he goes and checks with him and it just is so matter of fact and so like why, so she is. All right, well, we'll just carry on. It's kind of like, yeah, but that's really weird. Are you not going to say something to her? Or I don't know what HR regs were in the Soviet Union, but I'm guessing that would be against them. Might be frowned upon, yes. I think I brought this up in my commentary, but it reminded me of in the 90s, so a couple of years after this film, the, the Soviet topless news or I'm sorry, the the Russian topless news where they were just trying to get some people to actually watch the news. It's like, all right, we'll just have this lady sit here without a shirt on reading the evening report. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of uh, Terry Jones when he plays the organ naked on Monty Python. There's a lot about this that reminds me of Monty Python. And props to Yelena Arjanik, who is playing the secretary, because she's just so nonchalant and... She seems like she's completely oblivious to her state and just doesn't understand why this guy is just visibly uncomfortable and just doesn't really know where to look. And she's just like, what? What do you want? Why are you here? Even the conversation that he's having with the guy who runs this company, it's like, yeah, I'm here. We've changed specs or whatever and the back of the panel for this air conditioner doesn't fit and we need you to do this and he's like oh well i'm sorry the chief engineer died he uh drowned in the river oh well that's the thing he he doesn't know it's it's he can't remember and then the secretary reminds him the chief engineer died by drowning in a river eight months ago and he's like oh yeah and it's just it's just so bizarre that that a detail like that could have slipped his mind. Again, it's another fantastic performance because the guy who's playing the head of the, of the factory, he's just, just so kind of weirdly passive and sort of just mildly gruff and grumpy. He's not a 
aggressive in any way. He's just sort of like sleepily bemused and absent-minded and just with this very stony face. And living in Moscow, I saw many guys of like that age that did have that sort of inscrutable, gruff look about them. Um, but yeah, it's it's so odd. He he definitely gives off this vibe that he's been through some shit and is just unfazed by whatever is happening, but in kind of an exhausted way, like, yeah, okay, the secretary's naked, this guy died, we can't help you, you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, just go back to Moscow and, you know, come come back in two weeks. And I don't know how far away this place is from Moscow, but it feels like that would be very inconvenient to our main character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My experience of traveling around in, in Russia, I mean, I'm from the UK, so my conception of distance is probably not what the average Americans is. <laughs> but still, things are a long way apart in that in that place. And you're talking overnight train journeys to get to a lot of places. And I think he's probably just stopping by for a bite to eat before he goes to the train station. Is that what what's going on here when he goes into the restaurant? The most unforgettable bite to eat imaginable where where the gaslighting reaches such an intense degree that this is honestly maybe my favorite scene in the film because the guy who plays the waiter, it just uh Yuri Shersnyov who I think was in some kind of bigger historical productions in the 2000s, like Master and the Margarita, the look on his face of like, how dare you not want dessert is... (laughs) They're just so good in those roles. (laughs) But he's a very incongruous waiter because he looks more like a henchman or like a bodyguard or a bouncer because he's just this huge guy and he's very muscular, bald. He, This is such a weird comparison, but he reminds me vaguely of like the main orc villain in those not-so-great Peter Jackson Hobbit movies. The one with the stick arm? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's that kind of build and face, uh, almost. And the faintly male- malevolent way he just jabs that like holding fork in so he can cut the slice out. <laughs> It's it's just it's just so beautifully played and beautifully filmed. Just so sinister. It's so threatening. It's like eat this or or you're about to find out what will happen if you don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that in the commentary you you described it as mild body horror because yeah, so much. I mean, we've gone from the Monty Python skit of the two peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro to the dirty fork skit you know it's like we're just moving through like a greatest hits of monty python here the dessert the meal itself is strange enough but the dessert when that comes out and didn't ask for dessert and i definitely didn't ask for a cake that is in the likeness of my own head and it's it's perfect like it's the perfect cake, yes. the cake is so good how did you do this in the five minutes that i've been here in this restaurant which adds to the whole like conspiratorial flavor of the film like there's just this malevolent power observing his every moment and just kind of planning things ahead of him and also the way that they try to like retcon his identity, like actually the dessert chef 
is your father who you've never met before and because you won't even take a bite of this head cake he's made you now he's going to kill himself (laughs) when does the father thing come up because i didn't even know that that was in this part i thought that was later on that that comes up later but it's it's just like the way that this whole random sequence of events almost turns the film into like a murder mystery for a little bit it's very destabilizing because you never have any idea what's about to happen next and neither does the main character you better eat this dessert or else the chef is going to be very upset you better eat this dessert or else the chef is going to kill himself (laughs) (laughs) later on in the inspector's office, the inspector's just saying, oh, yeah, very, very normal, stable individual, no health problems, no nothing. This is it's just like, OK. And yet this has happened. He's killing himself over this perceived insult, over this weird head cake gesture. Did he kill himself or was he actually murdered? Because then they introduced that into it. Even though we watched him, it. Parts of it remind me a little bit of what they do in certain Jalo films, where it's like you see something unfold, but later on you're kind of told, like, no, it didn't actually happen that way. Also, when the music starts up at the restaurant, and it's just like all of a sudden this jazz band starts, and I'm like, is the at first I'm like, is this diegetic music, not diegetic? And then all of a sudden the curtain raises up, and yeah, it's diegetic. There you go. Here's your band. And he looks so confused. Are they really playing though, Mike? Right. Are they really playing or are they sinking to a record? They're almost like the band in Abominable Dr. Fibes. I mean, they're they're real people in this film, but the way, there's just something so strange and artificial about it. And it's funny that it's described as jazz because it sounds more like a, a tango they're playing, which has this slightly menacing quality to it as well and random aside here but supposedly when the soviet troops surrounded the germans in stalingrad and had completed the encirclement um and it was just a matter of time before they would close in and like retake the city apparently they they put up massive speakers and blasted tango music at the german troops just to play mind games and intimidate them. So I don't know whether this is any reference to that or whether it's just they like some tango music. And the music plays on when the the shot rings out. They just, they don't miss a beat, literally. It really gives you the sense that they all knew what was about to happen, everyone except for Alexei. And Leonid Filatov is so good at looking. He has this very sort of tragic kind of melancholic expression to his face that works so well for the comedy here where he just is like kind of put out because they are trying to gaslight him but is horrified at the same time and he has such little dialogue throughout the film but it's like you're right there with him it's an absolutely masterful performance in terms of his reactions and just the building desperation i mean in this moment he just does a brilliant job of just jumping out of his skin basically when the gun goes off as you would i imagine that's quite a difficult thing to to you know to fake that level of surprise but yeah just his 
growing, like, contained building panic. Yeah, I have to wonder if maybe in that scene uh, it was sort of like an alien moment and they didn't tell him exactly when they were going to fire off the gun. So the, su- the, the surprise seems very real. I love the moment when the other chefs come out and look at the one dead chef's body and it almost becomes like a renaissance tableau of them. I was expecting like the pieta of them holding uh, the chef, you know, but it's just like all of these like they they literally stop for a second and it's like this perfect pose of them in shock at the the chef's death i want to say he meets the chief of police or sorry the inspector sorry i i I, because people don't necessarily have too many names in this but there's the inspector and man what a fascinating character we don't know if he's helpful if he's not helpful he seems like a spoiled child at times and he's the one who, I would say he's our main antagonist, but at the end, he helps our hero out. So, or does he? I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll get there. But this police inspector character, he is fantastic in the way that he keeps us off balance the entire time. He's so good. And it's sort of wild to think that this level of satire against not just the police inspector, but sort of anyone in a position of power in town. I don't think you could have made this film in 1984 or 1985 even. Like, it just is such a direct kind of shots fired against Soviet officials. The only time I've seen anything similar from Soviet cinema is... Going way back to the Khrushchev Thor we talked about, Welcome or No no Trespassing, uh, on an earlier episode, Mike. But that has a similar disdain for authority, but that had really shut down with Brezhnev coming coming to power. And yeah, it was almost like 20 years before you had this level of being able to poke fun at the authorities in quite such a consistent way, I think. The film doesn't just poke fun at authority. It also pokes fun at this kind of like historical myth-making that is something that I think has happened certainly in the U.S. and lots of other countries, but has happened in a really dramatic way throughout Russian history. That's almost the whole thesis of the film is just this idea that people can kind of rewrite history and facts and even current day events whenever they feel like it. All of the things that we've been talking about up to this point, it's been prepping us for what I think is the longest sequence in the entire film, which is when he goes to this museum. He's trying to get out of town. He meets the inspector. The inspector really puts us on that rocky ground even more than we already are with the naked secretary, the chef killing himself, the head cake. He tries to get out of town, can't get out of town. The road is closed, basically. And he ends up going to this museum, this museum, which is underground, which is kind of strange in itself. And that is populated with all of these scenes of quote unquote Russian history. Those, a lot of them just didn't exist or couldn't exist. And the way that they present them, it's just like, All of this is a historical fact, and it's just one after another after another. And again, these just get more and more hard to swallow as we're going through. 
all of them seem to be telling a very big story. I think if I was a smarter person, I would know more of the details as far as what they're trying to do. But I mean, saying like, oh yeah, the Romans were here, you know, um, the, uh, this whole thing of like, um, this is Attila the Hun's bed and they found semen on it. And so then they took that and then genetically recreated what Attila the Hun looks like. I'm just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) My understanding is that this museum set piece was the whole inspiration for the film and they kind of wrote the script around it. But the way that they make the town out to be the center of the universe for all of human history is just incredible. And the actor, Yevgeny Yevstigniev, is another, I mean, I know I've said this about everybody in the film so far, but he is just so great at like deadpan, serious, delivering these lines. And the engineer just like he looks just baffled and dumbfounded but like can't bring himself to argue with them yeah he tries a little bit with the roman things it's like no no the romans never made it onto the territory of the ussr and he's just met with like a stony silence i think and then he just decides no i don't think it's worth it random aside though What's with the with the beret? It has a sort of slightly like Che Guevara vibe to it. It does. There are so many things in this scene. Like you could probably do a two hour long commentary on this scene alone, unpacking all the historical and cultural references. It it's wild how richly detailed it is. And at first, the first time I saw it, I kind of wondered if maybe. They chose to have all the figures as actors in costume for budgetary reasons, but it's also just such a brilliant stylistic choice because it makes it so much creepier. Each exhibit is different, too. They're not all of the same flavor. Like, you get ones where it's like, oh, here it looks like The Last Supper, or here, yeah, I think that's the one that has the words going up and around it. You know, you get the, the carousels. It's not just like uh, Madame Tussauds where it's like, okay, here's this exhibit, then this exhibit, then this exhibit. And it doesn't even feel like the floor plan has any logic to it at all. It just feels like we're wandering through this thing and just keep getting exposed to more and more insanity. I mean, once we get to the two carousels that are going around, like, and at first I thought it's one carousel and then no, no, here's this other carousel as well. And get to see all of these like historic figures of Russian past and the decorative costumes and all this. And then the other one is just all these people in blue jeans. They look like a bunch of dirty hippies. And I'm like, okay, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. But there's a little bit of mixing in. I mean, the the one on the left-hand side with all the traditional costume, that looks particularly like 30s and 40s uh, socialist realist propaganda. Like I've there are many metro stations around Moscow that to this day have figures like that. And it's this very idealized version of like the peasantry of all the different republics. I mean, some of it just does look quite ridiculous. And there's sort of like a deadpan irony, like like the, the woman holding the two massive melons in a maybe slightly suggestive way. <laughs> I want to say there's even one that is the liquidation of the royal family. Yes. Yeah, it's like how morbid, like there's that. And then there's a lot of people being arrested in these tableaus as well. 
a lot of that in Soviet history, for sure. Possibly the creepiest is that tableau where it's the young Stalin in like about 1904, 1905. And it's, it's just... He looks so sinister, but the way the museum guide is presenting it and the fact that we get this sort of choral music over it and it's kind of reverential and it's just like, this guy was just such a nasty piece of work. And at the time that the film was coming out, Stalin's crimes were once again being talked about in the in the Soviet press and like discussed. It was it was no longer frowned upon to do that in the 50s and like under Khrushchev there was a like yeah that was bad let's not let's not look too hard about who was taking orders from him and what they're doing now but Stalin was bad and let's all agree that that got out of hand no more questions everything's fine now But then it went from that to the Brezhnev era of just, okay, let's not even talk about Stalin at all. Maybe he can appear in war movies and look impressive. But, you know, we don't we don't want to talk about how he was bad. We just say, yeah, he was there. End of story. That happened. That happened. <laughs> this, I think, is also around the time when the murder of the Romanovs sort of re-enters public record as like, oh, maybe the Soviets actually were responsible. And, you know, the the grave sites were found around this time. And and I'm pretty sure that's what led Shek Nazarov to make Assassin at the Tsar a couple of years later. So it's interesting that you get a little glimpse of that in the museum sequence here. So creepy. So the museum is talking all about the past, and it's mostly the past of the Soviet Union overall, and especially of this town. And the one thing that they really focus on, and that will come back time and again in this, and really kind of now starts to set the tone for the rest of the film, is this exhibit of these two people dancing, and this photograph or large picture of this man on the wall, and it becomes this whole story of this is the guy the the of the couple that's dancing this is the guy who is the chef and who might also be your father but <laughs> <we're>, uh, <laughs> and here's this woman that was dancing with him and uh this other guy ratted them out the one who's in the photograph he ratted them out and then she was so ashamed that she went home and drank acid and burned up her vocal cords and then this uh the man who became the chef he was this high-ranking person but he danced to rock and roll music this same bill haley song that they play through the entire thing so much so that they even go back and they give us a flashback that starts off in black and white becomes color of this is what is going on here with this scene and i don't think they do that at this moment but later on in the film they will do that. And like I said, it just becomes this whole like central inciting incident of what happened in our town and how it still has these reverberations today that the chef just killed himself. And the guy who ratted them out, that's the police chief, right? Or the inspector. Yeah. The, okay. yeah, the prosecutor, I think is right. Oh, the prosecutor, not the inspector. 
Or is that the same person? No, no, it is a different person because we don't see very much of the inspector. We have a, like a brief scene with him. And that one was just quite interesting for me because in the background of that scene where the inspector is, is saying like, this is what we think happened and this is why you can't leave leave town. Behind him on the wall is a portrait of Felix Derzinski, who was the head of the Cheka, which was like the precursor to the KGB, which I think probably would have been something that was normal in KGB offices up to the end of the Soviet Union because they were proud of this guy. Um, actually, he came up in uh, in Three Poplars at uh, Plushika, which we discussed earlier in the year, Mike, as... Uh, as that was the the big statue on that square that the taxi driver drives past. So it's just this kind of connection back to the early revolution and some of the uh, some of the things that were done to make the revolution stick, as it were. That's one way to put it. After the museum, he goes out and he ends up somehow. And I like even rewound this because I was just like, how does he suddenly become with this family? But he ends up meeting this family and having dinner with them. And there's this fucking creepy kid that shows up. Once the parents are out of the room, the kid starts to open his mouth and he's just like, predicts his death. You know, you will die in 2015. And I'm just like, oh, man. <laughs> and then there's a little bit of talk about um, Nostradamus after that. Like uh, this woman, Anna, shows up and she starts talking about Nostradamus predicting Hitler. And it's like okay, so I guess predictions are kind of a thing in this world, and I guess you're supposed to believe that this guy will die in 2015. It just gets crazier and crazier, and I, I think the way he winds up with that family is the guy who runs the museum makes some calls and basically says, you know, we have this guy wandering around, like something has to be done. There's no hotel for him to get to right now because he's out in the middle of nowhere. And like, can some, can one of you put him up and, and get him back to the train station? And I think that's sort of what leads him further into this town insanity. Yeah, he's just being passed from one person to the next until Anna shows up and then she's there to, I guess, take him back to the main part of the city and put him, you know, back in his hotel and just kind of keep him there. It's like he's almost on house arrest in this movie because now he is being suspected of killing the chef. Which is definitely another element that really reminds me of Kafka, the sense that, like, he's not being put in jail, but they give some sort of excuse to limit his movements and put him on kind of like probation with extra surveillance. It's, it's so creepy. Well, he even is supposed to sign an oath that he won't leave town. It's like, really? Because he meets back up with the inspector who's just like, oh yeah, we were going through the papers of the chef and here's a photo of you and it's signed on the back and we've already checked the handwriting and it is definitely your handwriting and you sign this photo Mahmoud and I'm like wow okay and so suddenly Mahmoud very ethnic type of name so I'm just like all right is this one of these like oh you're a Jew and we're going to prosecute you because you're a Jew or and now it's like oh you're Mahmoud and I'm not sure what ethnicity that's going to be but now that makes you even more suspicious this sort of thing that they do where more and more of these made-up details come out throughout the film, 
it's like it is very funny, but it also becomes more and more sinister because you get the sense that I think the second half, especially when he starts to wander around this village at night, it almost takes on this kind of folk horror sort of tone where you think like are they going to sacrifice this guy like what what's happening it's very wicker man yeah yes killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey he eventually gets a call from the city prosecutor um i noted that he keeps trying to sleep but he's never able to sleep and he just keeps being shifted out of his situation by different people who either call or show up and so now he's supposed to talk to the city prosecutor and i think that's when we get to see the whole crime replayed now as a murder and not a suicide again this rewriting of history this gaslighting you're like really that's not what we saw at all and then yeah that's this whole thing of like yeah the music wasn't playing you know you're totally wrong about this you know don't try to deny that you're mahmoud you are definitely mahmoud and you're definitely the chef's son when the prosecutor inter- introduces himself before he gets into the details he he just says have you ever dreamed of committing a crime i have and it's an irony i spend my whole life you know tracking down criminals and put and bringing them to justice but really i envy them it's a paradox and Varakin is just like okay you get those phone calls too when he's in his room from the three women and where did they come from? It's just like this random phone call. And then they actually show up in the movie later on. And they like bring a party to his hotel room with, with food and the whole town shows up. And it's like on one hand, they're sort of presenting him as this potential criminal who murdered this guy but then on the other hand it's like they've decided to adopt him and like they've known him all along yeah like he's almost a mascot that scene i know we're jumping ahead a little bit but that scene it's like i don't think there's any cuts in that and it all seems to be taken from one angle it looks again like we're in that museum and now we've got this almost proscenium of his hotel room or wherever he's at and then, yeah, more and more people just keep coming in. I, I was reminded a little bit of the Marx Brothers with all the people in the stateroom. And they're just like, keep coming in, coming in, coming in. And there's moments of uncomfortable silences. There's music that plays. There's food that gets eaten. It's kind of a party, but it's no party that I would ever want to attend. And he doesn't want to be there at all. And then, like, the mayor decides to adopt him. The woman who drank the acid, she comes in and starts talking to him through, I guess, her grandson. Uh, he's the translator. What is she doing? She's writing and he's reading it to him. Like it, this, the grandson, I think, is a little superfluous because I think he could just read this. Nikolaev could read it just as easily as uh, the grandson reading it. But it just adds that extra layer of awkwardness. Yeah, and there's all this stuff connected to her about this idea of people maybe resisting or rebelling in the past and how badly it went for them, not necessarily because they were given any external punishment by the Soviet authorities, but it almost seems like the punishment is internal. Like with her, how you mentioned that like she's so ashamed that she danced to this music that she poisons herself and disfigures herself. 
there's a writer in town who at first I thought he was going to be an ally, but not really because pretty soon it's like, oh, we need to talk about your father. And it's like, it's not his father, guys. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but he's the one who introduces the whole flashback to the first rock and roller. They make a big point of saying that this incident took place on May 18th, 1957. And I was trying to find if that was a date that something else happened in the Soviet Union. Couldn't find anything, but it's interesting that they are very specific about this is the day. This is the day that rock and roll came to our town and this decadence that is introduced and just how, like you said, how ashamed the woman is, how it ruins the man's career, the, that he goes from this big wig to now he has to become a chef. I mean, chef is a great position to be in, but I think it's supposed to be a lot lower than the position that he was in before. It's such a strange, strange scene. And what really gets me is there's a moment when the video of the, I want to say it's the video of the flashback cuts out and suddenly we're watching like a music video for a few seconds. And then we go back to the movie and I'm like, what the hell just happened? But I love that it, it, it just really breaks with the form. I don't know whether it's a music video or whether it's some kind of like weird porn because the there is music playing, but it's these—it's this man and this woman kind of like dancing naked briefly, and then the writer's just like, oh, just ignore that. Why are we watching this flashback on his television? Like, was someone there to film this particular day? <laughs> yeah, is that why it was in color all of a sudden? You know, yeah. I didn't notice the first time, but the second time around, I just noticed how much people are drinking around him or trying to ply him with alcohol and the head writer takes like two shots of this i guess like liqueur or something while he's he's there but several times we we've seen him be offered drink and he said no no i'm uh, i'm teetotal which is interesting just because the time this film came out shortly after gorbachev came to came to power there was a big big drive in the in the soviet union big campaign around sobriety and just drinking less because alcoholism had just become such like a chronic problem in the soviet union so in a way the film sort of setting him up as like a model citizen who is you know following the sobriety recommendations whereas everyone else is just like yeah just have a casual drink in in the morning because like the writer seemed it just seems to I don't know. It's not obvious what time of day, but it just feels like they're sitting in, in the house like early, you know, sort of 10 o'clock in the morning and he's just ha knocking back a couple of shots while he's explaining this like bizarre incident from 30 years ago. It also is a way of setting him apart from their kind of typical town customs because the way he looks at the shot, at the first shot that the writer gives him is like, why would I want to drink that right now? Wouldn't you know, today is the day that the Chef's Rock and Roll Club was going to open. <laughs> Talk about a left turn again. And since you're his son, we want you to come and speak at this opening. Say a few words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet he's introduced... Like they call for him as his actual name. They don't call for him as Mahmoud. So it's just like, okay, what's the story? All this stuff about 
the sort of rock and roll as being this kind of socially taboo thing is such a great inclusion in the film because it's something that Shaq Nazarov dealt with a little bit before it earlier in the 80s he made this comedy about this uh, music school student who's kicked out of school because he likes jazz and American music which of course is an example of like decadent American capitalism and no good Soviet citizen should be listening to it and so the fact that like this one single interest utterly ruins the chef but now he's maybe being rehabilitated it's <laughs> It's so confusing. Yeah, because everybody is there. All the characters, it feels like, that we've met through this thing. I mean, definitely the waiter shows up, the prosecutor, the uh, inspector. All of these folks are at this club. The speech that he gives is so awkward, you know, just like, what can I say about a man I've never met? And it's like, oh, you know, like I'm thinking like, oh, you had a rocky relationship with your father. (laughs) (laughs) but no he's never met this man never exchanged words with him at all yeah here he is giving this speech and then they're just like hey come on dance for us come on dance and everybody starts to dance except for the prosecutor who is not happy gets up on stage the music stops because he gives this little speech and then he he says the chef never could have shot himself because he didn't have the guts So then he pulls out his gun and sticks it to his head and empty click. And there's more and more and more dry firing. He takes the gun apart, puts it back together, starts to to shoot at his own head again. No one is saying anything. No one tries to stop him. He just eventually gets so mad that he walks off the stage and starts crying. The plot continues to thicken. It's such a harrowing scene, though. Where the chef's suicide happens so quickly and so out of nowhere that you can't really feel upset by it. It's it's surprising in more of a comedic, absurd way. Here, it's just like, here's this guy who's really clinging to these values. In that sequence, it seems like what they're trying to reveal is that like everyone has hated this guy all along but he's stubbornly like no this is this is how you have to behave and you know killing yourself is this a real act of masculine bravery performance wise vladimir menshov is just so convincing in that moment he just does look like he's absolutely having this this breakdown and it's it's harrowing. Just even even on the rewatch, when I know, yeah, he's not going to die. He's the gun is not working. But it's it's just how desperate he plays it. It's just just spellbinding in this really horrific way. And that seems to be the moment where he starts to change because later on, like I said, he is the one who's like, you know, oh yeah, get out of here, and we'll talk about that tree in a few minutes. But he's the one that kind of sets you know our main character back on his way for better or for worse, because then he ends up coming, I mentioned that party in the hotel room, and he ends up, party, quote-unquote, he ends up coming in looking a little different. I think he's wearing a, a the a yellow jacket, or am I mixing up the inspector no, and the no, prosecutor that's him. again? Okay, all right. But yeah, he, he now seems to be a little bit of a different person at that point, 
And the one thing that I remember, especially from that party scene, is how they're talking about how important it is to rehabilitate rock and roll. <laughs> so, you know, Sam, you mentioned this whole like rehabilitation of people, and now it's a rehabilitation of rock and roll. We need to recast rock and roll in our history, just as we've been rewriting everything else in this movie, be it the lineage of our main character the Romans showing up in the Soviet Union, all of these things, now we need to make it so that rock and roll isn't decadent. Yeah, it's sort of that, and we've always been at war with East Asia 1984 thing. The thing that I think impresses me so much about this film is the way it manages to constantly surprise you. Once you start really getting into watching a ton of films from lots of different countries and time periods... That's sort of the, the thing that I miss is feeling surprised by things that are borrowing from, you know, tropes and subgenres. And here you just never have any idea what the hell is possibly going to happen next. How would you classify this this film? I think we've mentioned in passing like four or five different genres that this this could be. And it's sort of like a psychological horror, folk horror, like is there some sci-fi going on because you've got that end of the end of the road where it's kind of blocked out? Is it this sort of like lo-fi sci-fi or, or what's going on? Yeah. It's a mystery as well. What happened? Who's who is this person? What's going on in this town? At first I thought we were going to try to figure out why the chief engineer killed himself in a river eight months ago or find out more details about that. No, not at all. The more the townspeople talk about the chef as being his father, it like sticks in your brain that maybe this is a real possibility. It's like he gaslights the audience, not just the main character, which is a pretty impressive feat. Yeah, there are definite moments where I'm like, was he really his father? You know, (laughs) (laughs) what is the connection? How could he have made this head cake? In such a short time, you know, would he have had to have had this made already? Did he know that his son was coming to wait? No, I said his son. He's not his son. The one line I, I think you also noted it here, uh, Alistair, is um, when our main character refuses to drink to progress the uh, toast that they're ter- trying to have at this party scene. That just reflects that Perestroika and Glasnost were real issues in the Soviet Union and there were hardline communists who were just like no this is not the way that it should be done and that ultimately came to a head in 1991 in August when there was the the coup that tried to remove Gorbachev that ended up actually just speeding up the collapse of the Soviet Union but yeah I think it's just reflecting that you had these people in society who were were just like no hang on I've been told this thing all my life and you saying actually we need to change it now no i'm not having it would be how people like the prosecutor would have seen it the sort of establishment people who have got where they are by towing the party line it's just like you can't just change the party line yeah there's such an interesting mix of things going on with the end of the soviet union and the end of some of the Soviet satellite states where it's like you do have those sort of hardline people who have profited from following the trends of the party who don't want it to change. 
Then you have the people who want things to be more democratic and they don't want to live in poverty. And then you have the people who are actual leftist communists and they want this sort of return to real communism and not just totalitarianism. And so it's it's like all of these threads together are really hard to unweave and make sense of, which I think he gets at here a little bit in this film. And then you maybe get people who are following the change in the wind, not necessarily because they're sincere Democrats, but just they see this is the way the wind is blowing. They see that as the way to get on is is by ch- by sort of getting out, uh, going with this sort of new mood and appearing to be champions of it. And I get a bit of a feeling about that with the head of the writer's organization because he's super establishment uh, you know he has a cushy job maybe he's doing it for sin- for sincere reasons but maybe it's just this is how to actually preserve my privilege um maybe the film is very satirical and cynical about those people especially It's just this idea that like, oh, yes, we've always accepted rock and roll. We've always accepted these things. This is just always how it's been. Let's just keep rewriting history every year or so. You're saying it's a falsehood and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. So doing the right thing, maybe for the wrong reasons. That's probably oversimplifying, but... It's interesting to me that the party breaks up, but not really. Everybody in the party ends up going to this 1200 year old oak tree in the middle of the forest. And unlike rollerball, they don't start shooting up trees. Instead, they're talking about the importance of this tree. And there's this whole thing about how it was, um, what, like the, a prince of Moscow who came to this tree and did it have something to do with like ruling this oak tree that they were at? Yeah. So they tell this sort of legend that way back in the murky depths of time um, before uh, Rus, the precursor to the Russian state, converted to Christianity, the pagan like chieftains would would like pull off branches as a show of strength. And if you pulled pulled a, a branch off, then you got to be the leader. But then somebody would assassinate you, and then somebody else would pull a branch off, and then they would be the leader. And it was kind of just this very sort of doggy dog kind of world and then we get this reference to this later prince of moscow who stood up to the mongols because for a long time the russian princes were like essentially vassals to mongol rulers who would just like tap them for tribute every so often which you know cushy job if you can get it but yeah again it's like this tiny little nowhere town is connected with all of Russian history. Uh, I did want to just say in passing that as far as how we translate the title of this film, Zero City is good. Zero Grad is like really evocative in, in English. But I think probably the best translation, like in a really literal way, is is ta- is just Town Zero because Gorod can be city or town. And this place, it's not a big metropolitan centre. It's just somewhere quite provincial and remote and set in its ways but somehow the center of russian and possibly world history all the way back to pre-christian pagan times 
Which is also why when they get to this very sort of fairy tale like setting with this ancient tree, I was convinced that they were going to kill him and hang him from the tree. Convinced. This is where he meets his end. And he might have, but he gets sent away by the prosecutor, like I said, in this kind of moment of mercy, but I'm not sure how merciful it is. There's that great moment, though, when the girl is like, hey, I want to pull off a branch on this, you know, kind of like start that tradition up again, goes up to it, pulls it, and all this huge part of the tree just falls down. This tree is rotten to the core, which, of course, is a major statement about the politics of Russia at this time. It's truly wild that Sheknazarov could make a film like this even in 1989, and wind up becoming the director general of Moss Film. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I don't know how, you know, he must know how to uh, negotiate the waters pretty well, I guess. Yeah, or I think some of it is just being in the right place at the right time, like especially historically speaking. So, like I said, the prosecutor, quote-unquote, saves him by saying, hey, you know, you need to run, get out of here. Our main character runs away, goes through the forest. And again, I'm expecting pursuit or something. Instead, he you know makes it to the next morning. You know, we've got the dawn, which should be the, you know, here's the relief. It's kind of like you survived the night and the haunted house. The dawn is here. You're all set now, but he's not set. He's really not okay. This movie ends. It ends with cross-cutting, which I appreciate. There's cross-cutting between the museum and we've got the museum. I kept calling him the docent, but he's not a docent. He's just you know the runner of the museum. Him going through and turning off the lights on these different exhibits as we cross-cut with our main character going through the forest. Him eventually finding this lake. I don't think it's a river. It's a lake, which is a big thing because... He gets on this boat and casts himself off. I don't think he's got an oar or anything. He's just on this lake. I love the image of him standing on this boat with all the fog on the water. And he basically just casts himself adrift. And it feels like, and I think you say this in your commentary, Sam, it feels like eventually he's just going to land on shore someplace and Somebody's going to take him and maybe take him back to that damn tree and tie him up. Who knows what it's going to be? Like, there is not safety at the end of this movie. This is not like, oh, our character came to town. All these weird things happen, but he's okay because he's not okay. Yeah, he's literally adrift in this, like, false dawn. And I love, as you say, the cutbacks to the museum because it reminds us of that really sinister, sort of hallowed scene of of Stalin giving this supposed toast in his youth about how the sun is rising for us. And it's like, and all of what that entails. I hate to keep bringing Kafka up, but it is still very Kafka-esque. It's like, well, you've made it through, but you're still here. It's just going to keep repeating. There's really no escape. Welcome to hell. <laughs> you might have woken up a man today, but tomorrow you might wake up a cockroach again. Or you might wake up tied to that tree. The blood will replenish the tree. I also would have accepted an ending where he's just turned into a uh, living dead wax sculpture in the museum uh, in some sort of tableau with his quote unquote father, the chef. Yes. (laughs) 
I would have even accepted had another person come to that restaurant and he comes out and he's the new chef. Oh, yes. <laughs> that would also be great. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with director and co-writer Karen Sheknazarov with some crucial help, by the way, from translator Elena Orell. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. How did you become a filmmaker? I graduated from the film school, very famous film school in Soviet Union called uh, Vgik. It's uh, the most famous film school and uh, many, uh, I think almost all uh, Soviet and Russian filmmakers graduated at this school, including Tarkovsky, Konchalovsky, Mikhalkov, all of them. So also I graduated uh, this school. What was the film industry like when you were going to school? What was it about film industry? It was Soviet Union. And uh, in Soviet Union, it was enough powerful. Uh, big industry, it, uh, more than 300 films, long feature films uh, was produced all around the Soviet Union. Uh, Soviet Union uh, have big studies in every republics, now independent, but um, uh, all of them have uh, their studies. And in the the most, for instance, in the Russian in the Russian Federation, we have four studios, in Ukraine, two studios. So so it was powerful, very powerful industry with big um, distribution uh, net yeah, correct. Uh, network. Yes, so it it was it was uh, it was very big industry. If memory serves, you're coming up just as. Uh, Glasnost was being put in place. How did that affect you? Not exactly. I I, I become to shoot uh, big films, uh, long feature films uh, in the era of Brezhnev. So my first film was uh, in 1979. Then I, uh, Jasmine was 18. So I think my first film, which is, um, which Safpolk coincided uh, in time with the period of Glasnost, it was Courier Messenger Boy. It was 1986. It was uh, um, just after Gorbachev become the the, the 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 leader of, and when he already uh, become some reforms. So I began and. Uh, Previous time, but then I uh, work in in the, uh, no, the during this period of perestroika also. Yes. Do you think a film like Zero Grad could be made ten years before you made it? 
Как... No, no, it was impossible. It's it's really what is about zero grad. It's really the it can be made only in the period of this perestroika Gorbachev period, and mostly uh, and more. It was it was made in the end. It uh, because uh, this period, which called perestroika, it was not. That doesn't mean that Gorbachev make it and everything change. So it was the process. And um, surely such film as uh, Zero Grad, uh, it, it, it was made in 1988, almost in 1989, in the, in the end of 90s. So it was already such period when, when really it was the absolutely freedom and already no censorship in Soviet Union. So before it was impossible. Where did the idea for the film come from? I don't know. <laughs> Something <laughs> came. It, uh, I, I can say that uh, usually I made films uh, exactly understanding from the beginning which I have idea. Just I uh, try to find some story or so sometimes some episode. And uh, from this I began to make film, to, to make script. And uh, frankly to say, sometimes I, I don't know when I begin. What will be the finish? <laughs> so, uh, so I can't uh, explain exactly why and why 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 it came, but this idea came, and so it is. Uh, I can say only that surely, what I remembered about this period that uh, inside myself and not maybe me, I I, I felt that um, the country is uh, going to the catastrophe. It was the feeling. It was just in, in the air. But I, I, I can't say that I want, wanted to make film about this. I just make the story. I love how the film is so absurd in so many ways. Are you a fan of like a Bunuel or any of the absurdists or Camus or any of these people? I, I like very much and they're in the Bunuel, his films and uh, until now, he's one of my favorite, and such. Um, uh, uh, yes, Fellini, Stanley Kubrick, uh, and uh, so yes, I think I have Bulgakov, uh, Mikhail Bulgakov. He's a writer, but I think uh, I, I think this uh, this surrealistic uh, the line. It's enough deep, meanwhile, in Russian culture. It came from Gogol, Gogol, Dostoevsky, in my opinion, in many things, they're surrealistic writers. And so I think it's, in, in general, it's, uh, it's surrealistic uh, ideas, how to say, I can excuse my English, but I understand what I want to say, that it, it's very deep in, in, I think, in our culture and came deep roots. Uh, but but also yes, that, uh, for me it was supported by this Bunuel and Fellini, Kubrick. There's a real sense too, as far as history and the retelling of history and who has control of the narrative. Was that kind of indicative of the time as well? I think yes, but frankly to say, I think that you say the, this what, what we called surrealism. I think this is. This is indeed, a, it's real life. What I say about 
about nowadays, what I say about life, already uh, already in age of 17, I can say it was absolutely surrealistic. I, I can't say now that it's uh, it's something, it's another, it's the main idea. All, all others, uh, artistic ideas is something, but surrealism is the, the, the way in which people live all days, all centuries, and now is the same. And when, when I, that's why, I, I, when somebody say me that you use some surrealistic, uh, artistic idea, I can say, look, look at the world. It's absolutely surrealistic. <laughs> look, look on the politics. What they say each day, each day. Just switch on TV or internet and computer, and you, and you hear that they they, they say absolutely things which is uh, absurdic. <laughs> but the the real life. That that's why I think this is the mainstream. What 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 I surrealism is the mainstream. All, all which is not surrealism, it's not mainstream. It's something, <laughs> something in normal. This is normal. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your co-writer, Alexander uh, Borodyansky? Uh, yes, well, it's my, he's my friend, and we worked with him for many years. Almost um, just last films were already, but maybe because our age. Uh, but I work with him all, all my films, more, more than, I don't know, 15 or 16. We, we, we wrote scripts together. So from, from the beginning, from the first hour steps in the cinema, and he's, he's my friend and I think he's outstanding script writer and really, a really great person. And uh, what what I like in his uh, in his way of work is that you see, script writers they usually they pretended to be writers. They wanted to be writers. They 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 wanted that the script is something such literature like a novel or something like it. But Alexander, his uh, his idea that script is is uh, the the. Uh, script is only the part of this film and the final the final idea to make film for him script is not you see like bible it's just the something uh, which which might must be rewrite rechanged which might be changed during the uh, shooting and that's why he usually very uh, she, 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 she is often in the on the stage. We we work together. We all see the what the the shots, and we change something, and we do something in another way. And this uh, this is the way which I very much uh, like in working with him. So he's really great, outstanding scriptwriter, Soviet and Russian. Did the film change a lot as it was being made? It, it changed. In some ways, yes, it's some some scenes became new and some scenes going away. Uh, no, in general, in general, it the same, but it was many things which we changed during the shootings. What were your memories of the shooting? How was it? The shooting was not easy on this film because there was some 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 ideas which, for instance, it was the great problem to make the head like. Uh, 
cake. It was a great problem. I remember this. We can't do this because we want to make it really from the cake with the Moscatelli From it should have been a real cake. It should be cut the way a cake is cut. We didn't want uh, to make a dummy out of the other material. It had to be a cake. And it was very difficult to achieve because the form, the shape of a head was very difficult for a cake. And it just and then some, someone, I don't remember exactly who, uh, got an idea which set things. Actually, the cakes which we were trying to make, uh, they, they bore no resemblance to the head of the main character. And that was very important. He had to see himself. And then the suddenly someone, I don't remember who, got an idea which uh, was actually uh, a good one. We, uh, it was remembered that for people who have some problems with eyesight, uh, they make artificial eyes. And they make them very well. And in the Soviet Union, they produced very good, so to say, artificial eyes. We ordered from them the eyes. Or the ape. The, the, the museum uh, scenes were very difficult to shoot. The underground museum. So, uh, all in all, it was a complicated affair. Why were the museum scenes so difficult to shoot? Ну, потому что была идея, изначально это была идея моя, что надо... Uh, from the very start, there were two ways, two approaches. Either make wax figures or uh, actors, employ actors. When we employed people who uh, presented figures. There were many of them, and uh, many takes were. No good because someone somewhere would move. 
Or wink. I don't want to ask you for explanations of any of the symbols in the film, because I don't think that's fair. But I am very curious as far as the, the two carousels in the museum seem like they're distinctly set apart, and I'm not exactly sure why. Я не могу сказать, что я когда снимаю, я вот понимаю, почему я сделаю так или иначе. I'm afraid I can't say uh, why I do things this way or that way when I'm shooting something. It's just my intuition which tells me that that would look good. No. Я, наверное, могу, поэтому это как посторонний человек даже сказать, что это может символизировать. Я думаю, что это символизировало тот образ Советского Союза, который был, и тот новый облик, который мы увидели, когда началась перестройка. Uh, I think that probably these two carousels symbolize the um, the image of the USSR, which was uh, before, and uh, the image of the new society, new country, which emerged at that moment. I think so. But on the other hand, on the other hand, everyone is free to come up with his own interpretation. Going back to the cake for a minute, how many did you have? Was it just the one cake and you had to be very careful with that take? Without the eyes, and a new cake. <laughs> so we moved them from one cake to the other. Only one pair of eyes, but there were two cakes. Tell me a little bit about your composer. I love the music in Zero Grad. Eduard Artemiev is a very famous composer. All the stool films by Tarkovsky. The five long films of Tarkovsky, which were shot in the Soviet Union, were with music by I worked. I I did two films with him. Zero Grad and Korea. He uh, uh, he is a really a great composer and we are great friends. Uh, I didn't work with him on other films because my films are uh, very different in genre and for other genres I needed 
other kind of music, so to say. I do really appreciate that about your work, the different genres that you worked in over the years. Uh, now I'm finishing a new picture, which is a detective story. <laughs> it's my first detective. But yes, indeed, I worked in different genres. How was Zero Grad received when it came out? Ну, он был очень хорошо принят, но он так и вызвал такие очень разные, очень... Он, он, вышел, он вышел в период, когда в стране был очень такой политическая и вообще обстановка такая была очень сложная, и, конечно, тут у нас были дискуссии. The, when the political situation in the country was complicated and there were a lot of discussions and of course the film received uh, different um, different meanings, different uh, reviews. Он, я бы сказал, был очень хорошо принят, кстати, на Западе. I would say that uh, the film was very well received in the West. One участвовал в Каннском фестивале. Он получил золотого Хьюга в Чикаго. И вообще много у него было очень много призов. Может быть, потому что на Западе решили, что это антисоветская картина. На самом деле, они считают антисовет. Я думаю, то, что в городе Зеро происходит, во всех странах одно и то же. Везде искажают историю. In any country you will see history distorted. Везде, как говорится, искажают реальную жизнь. And reality is distorted everywhere. И везде, как я говорил, она полна сюрреализма. And everywhere life is full of, of surreality. Ну, не знаю, во всяком случае, у нее был очень большой такой международный успех. Anyway, the film enjoyed great international success. And in the Soviet Union, now in Russia, it's rather popular. How has it been being the uh, director general of Masfel? No, it's It's quite a different story. Masfilm. У него статус государственного предприятия. Uh, Mosfilm is a state company. Но Mosfilm ничего не получает. But Mosfilm doesn't get any any funding from the state. В принципе, Mosfilm работает как чисто рыночное предприятие. Mosfilm works as a market enterprise. И это довольно сложно, хотя с другой стороны это. Quite difficult, but it's very interesting. Поэтому это значит где-то ты должен быть бизнесменом. So that means that you have to be a business manager, a manager. No, наверное, мне помогает все-таки то, что я много лет работаю в кино, и я в принципе знаю, как кино делается. But I believe that my uh, great experience in filmmaking, the fact that I know very well how films are made, is of great help. 
И, в общем, за эти годы мы серьезно перестроили Мосфильм. И, в общем, это сегодня действительно я одна из лучших студий мира. Я много где был, в том числе I, и в Америке. В Америке отличные студии, безусловно. Мосфильм сейчас не уступает. Приезжайте, welcome. Да. Надеюсь, что все это закончится. Хотя, в принципе, сейчас ездят. Давайте the efforts that Mosfilm has made to make sure that people can actually see the films, that it is, uh, they're accessible. I can go out to YouTube. I can see these movies. I can find them on Blu-ray and on DVD. I really have to thank you for that because there are so many countries where you can't find the historical films and this, it's such a valuable treasure trove of movies. Yes, we believe it is very important. It is important to exchange ideas in form of film. Потом, когда люди смотрят фильмы разных стран, when people watch films from other countries, они на самом деле становятся гораздо добрее друг другу. They grow, they grow kinder towards each other. Они начинают понимать друг друга. They start to understand better. Так они смотрят только политические новости. It's quite different from watching only political news. А так ты смотришь э, живую жизнь людей. They see the real life people. Мне кажется, country. это очень важно. And I believe it's very, very Кино — это действительно способ какой-то взаимоотношения. Films is a way of building uh, relationships. Поэтому мне кажется, что это очень важно. Mr. Shak Nazarov, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. It was pleasure to meet with you, and I welcome you. You'll be the guest of most film anyway. You can connect, contact with us. Thank you very much. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat bags on, join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. We're gonna rock, rock, rock till the broad daylight. We're gonna rock, gonna rock around the clock tonight. All right, we are back and we are talking about Zero City. And again, I'm so glad that this movie is now a lot more readily available. It was not impossible to find before i think i still have the mass film dvd that was released a few years ago with uh english subtitles so you know i i do like i said to uh mr shak nazarov in our interview i do appreciate all of the efforts that mass film makes to preserve things and keep them out there and keep them available i mean their youtube channel is freaking fantastic 
I appreciate that. And if you're interested in other Shaq Nazarov films, they are available on that Mosfilm channel, uh, at least quite a few of them. Yeah, they're doing such important work. And I think he's someone who's really been crucial in in that cultural ambassador role where Mosfilm was able to recognize their historical importance. And I think you can tour part of the studio as a historical museum. And it, it just, I, I feel like there are so many other Hollywood studios who aren't even doing the same thing with their own films. And I think it's especially important now because some of these have been hard to find, not accessible for English language audiences. So they're, they're doing some great work, I think, bringing important films to a more global audience. So, Sam, I know you watched a lot of Jacques Nazarov for your commentary. Does he delve into this kind of surrealist territory more than just Zero City? Yeah, so he gets into it in sort of different ways throughout his career, but especially after this. Assassin of the Tsar is a really important follow-up. I think it's been fully announced, so hopefully it's okay for me to say this, but Deaf Crocodile are putting that film out early next year. I did another commentary for that one. But he has some other films from the 90s, like Dreams, which is an absurdist comedy that I I actually have yet to see, but am really looking forward to that I think is set during the revolution. And then he has another one called The World History of Poisoning, which is from the early 2000s. So I think once he got the freedom to kind of go buck wild with this sort of absurdist surrealism that has been kind of his primary subgenre. Yeah, he definitely used the term buck wild when I spoke with him. I'm sure he did. Do you do you know what buck wild is in Russian? <laughs> I'm sure Elena could have helped me out with that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm very glad that more of these movies are are getting the light of day here in the US. I mean, like I said, it wasn't impossible to find them but it is much easier now which is wonderful and yeah i'm very curious to dive into more of his work because this one zero city really it it hit that spot it hit that we've talked about so many bizarro movies on this uh podcast before and this one just fits in perfectly there's a reason why and i think if i even go to my like big list of all the things I want to cover. I think that Zero City had been sitting on there for a while, so I'm very glad that we're able to now talk about it and people can readily pick it up for uh, a a not-too-crazy fee over here. Deaf Crocodile is someone, or is a company that I would really encourage people to follow because I think part of the struggle is even if films are available, like even if you can find them on a YouTube channel or on Blu-ray releases, if you don't know they exist, you don't know to be looking for them. And I think one of the interesting things that Deaf Crocodile are doing is instead of specifically trying to find genre films, which so many of these great smaller labels are doing, they're trying to find films that no one has heard of, like Romanian sci-fi animation and things like Unknown Man of Shandigore. And so they're doing a lot of work with 
Eastern European cinema, and I think just have so many exciting things coming up. So I would strongly encourage everybody to follow them on social media and just see what they're putting out. Alistair, you brought up Welcome No Trespassing and how that was made during that thaw period. Uh, and that so many of the films I think that we talked about earlier in 2022 were made during that thaw and then this is that very specific time, too, as we're going from Brezhnev, who was in power till, I think, 82, and then Gorbachev comes in, and Gorbachev just tries to right the ship. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a perfect person, but he definitely made a lot of impact on the Soviet Union. It really helped bring about a whole new era, I mean, the era of perestroika. I mean, for me, growing up in the 80s, it was, wow, thank goodness that there's this going on. And Gorbachev seemed like a much more reasonable person than Reagan did. And it felt like he kind of tempered Reagan's whole saber rattling that he was doing, where it was just this whole back and forth of the whole mutual assured destruction. And it felt like, oh, finally, we have a non-crazy person in power over in the Soviet Union, and he's trying to make a big difference. So like I said, it wasn't perfect by any means but it definitely helped out quite a bit and then it's a shame the way that the pendulum has kind of swung back over the last how long has putin been in power had more than 20 years i think yeah yeah it's a yeah he was prime minister in 98 or 99 and became president in the year 2000 so it's a long time yeah and i i think we have this sort of optimistic narrative around like oh when the soviet union ended the kgb went away but it's like they didn't they just became the fsb and their head has had totalitarian control over russia basically ever since i don't think you could make a film like this now in uh, maybe about a historical period of Russian history, but I don't think you could make this movie set in present day and have it be about Putin's government without being discreetly or not so discreetly poisoned. I haven't been following it as closely this this year, but as far as films that have like a dissenting kind of point of view, definitely recommend finding Petrov's Flu, which came out in UK cinemas, it feels like a million years ago, but it, it came out basically on the eve of the, you know, renewed invasion of Ukraine. And that is extremely critical of how Russia is at the moment. But I think, well, I think now subsequent to it, to the invasion, films like that just would not get made. But before that, even under the entrench like re-entrenching authoritarianism of, of Putin, I think there was a cynical, like, we will allow critical films to get made, but they're really for foreign art house consumption, like um, the guy who um, directed Leviathan and Loveless. Those films are very, like, bleak, but I don't think they are... You know they're not going to the multiplexes in in Russia. They're they're very they're yeah. It's a very select audience, and I think even I think now there probably wouldn't be the funding for that. But yeah, this is possibly above my pay grade. I mean, it will be interesting to see where Russian cinema goes in the next couple of years. 
because I feel like even even like my focus is less on current films and more on like films of the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, like the Soviet films. To both your point about it being great that we're getting to see these older films, I think it is really helpful to to understand that even in a oppressive and an authoritarian system like the Soviet Union, there were cracks and there were people making films that challenged the prevailing status quo when when they could and i think that's so useful for getting a more nuanced picture of how the world is that it isn't just okay this is a horrible country full of horrible people you know that's sort of simplistic kind of cold war version of like we're the good guys they're evil everyone is like a mindless like marxist leninist zombie who is out for your blood that's such an important point to make because american propaganda that started during the cold war and has continued really has this view this like super black and white view of communism and there i forget where I heard him say this, maybe in one of his commentaries, but the Polish director, Andrzej Zawski, was talking about this idea of freedom and censorship. And the point that he made was that Americans in particular have this really incorrect view of of freedom and, and sort of freedom of expression where communism is concerned. Because basically what he was saying was that When you work under communist rule as a filmmaker, you have a very clear set of rules that you're supposed to follow. And Alistair, to your point, I think post-1990, post-1955, every couple of years, you would have a director who would find a way to open it up a little bit more. And so you have so many interesting films coming out. But what Zhuavsky was saying about working in in like the Western democratic countries is they don't give you a list of rules of things that you can't do. But if you make a script or a film that people don't approve of, you just don't get the funding. So you're censored either way. And so this this idea that once you come to the West, you'll be in democracy and have freedom. Like, that's not true either, because money controls everything. That nuance is is so important. Oh, we should say, too, this whole idea of this gaslighting and everything, this is not just a Soviet thing from this particular era of this country. You know, I mean, we were all being gaslit for quite a few years, and we continue to be. I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that are going on where we're just like, Oh, that really isn't true. But I mean, we were really getting that in the era of alternative facts for four freaking years where it really felt like we were going down this rabbit hole and we were trying to navigate through Wonderland. It just like had the queen of hearts at the head of everything shouting, you know, I'm the only one that can fix this. I'm the best. And just, and we're just all there waiting for that wonderful health plan that is supposed to save us all. But but even before that, I mean, I know so many people who read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States and were like, how did I not ever learn any of this? So the U.S. during the Cold War period made up as many things about history as the Soviets did and like repressed all these awful things that they did wrong. So to me, it's like the same shit. 
I mean, why are we not taught about things like the, what was it, um, the big massacre, was it in Tulsa of all the black uh, business owners? And it's like, yeah. what the fuck, man? I never heard that in high school or elementary school. Well, it's so interesting that this film, it's all about 50s rock and roll, which in the time period that this film is made, the way that the film presents it is like it's still this exciting kind of taboo thing in the Soviet Union. Over in the US, I wasn't around that, you know, or conscious at that period of time. But this it's certainly from the late from 80s pop culture. It seems like the 50s were were pushed as this like, like happy, nostalgic, fun time that was just great for everyone. It's like, yeah, it was pretty great if you were white and middle class. But if you're African-American was not a good time. And and actually uh, there was a podcast I listened to earlier this year from um, the, uh, it's called the SLB podcast from an academic at um, uh, uh, University of Pittsburgh. And it was about this uh, American, he, he worked for a senator in, in the 60s and he took a like three month holiday to the Soviet Union. And just the number of Soviet people who, when he'd get into conversation about politics, they would say, you know how come your government is so oppressive to to black people? And he would just be like, uh, he would sort of try and make excuses because he, he, you know, he did feel feel guilty. But it was kind of like, yeah, during the during the Cold War, terrible things were happening in the West, and the Soviet Union was very aware of it and very willing to use it. Maybe not with the best of motives, but it was just yeah, uh, like a really sort of obvious stick to beat the u.s with well and not not even just oppressive against black people and people of color but it was a really awful time for women as well and for anyone with remotely left-leaning politics a time of a lot of oppression that i think the u.s government to your point did such a great propaganda job of painting this as like the decade of prosperity and Everyone has a television and we're going to space, kids. Like, Well, they did such a good job that people are still trying to get back to the 50s, thinking that, oh, it was this glorious time. We need to get back. You've got to come back with me. Back to the future. The McCarthy era, there were people being hauled up in front of the um, Un-American Activities Committee on the charge of being prematurely anti-fascist in the 30s. Like, there's such a thing as being against fascism, but too soon. You've got to let the fascists just do their thing for a bit, and then you stop them. It's like, really? Really, that's the line we're going with? I mean, yeah, you don't want to be anti-fascist. You do not want to be labeled anti-fascist. Growing up, you learn about all these awful things, at least growing up in the 90s, you learn about all these awful things that Stalin did and these show trials in the 50s. And it's like, maybe we should also learn that there are show trials in the U.S. in the 50s as well. Well, and just so we're not solely bashing the U.S. here, I am very conscious of my accent and nationality. Yeah, I, I grew up with just like, yeah, the British Empire was the... I mean, no one explicitly said this, but the subtext was... Yeah, empires are bad, but we were the one exception. We were a nice, kindly, enlightened, benevolent empire. And also, Winston Churchill, he is a hero beyond repro reproach. So don't look into any of the things that he said about 
various people around the world because that's no, he is beyond reproach. Or any of his super racist policies that resulted in the deaths of thousands of people. Like Stalin's not the only bad guy in history. No, I've seen our, 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 I know what was going on over in India at the time. So you can't fool me. I, I learned everything I need to know from the movies. I want to thank my co-hosts this week, Sam and Alistair. So Sam, what's been keeping you busy lately? Well, my podcast, Twitch of the Death Nerve, we usually have an episode every two weeks. Um, so I'm ve- very busy with that. I'm still recording a lot of commentaries. Like I said, I recorded one for Zero Grad and I'm doing some other work with Deaf Crocodile. I also, speaking of absurdist satires, there's a new label called Radiance Films that I would encourage everyone to check out. One of their, the first slate of their releases is this German movie called Red Sun that is basically all about this feminist commune who killed their boyfriends. And I wrote a liner essay for that release and I think they're another company who, like Deaf Crocodile, are focusing on really obscure films that have previously been unavailable, so they're someone else to watch out for. And Alistair, what's been going on with you since we talked about Soviet cinema earlier in 2022? Well, so I am just about to start a new day job, so I uh, have um, basically put Rus Files Unite, a Russian and Soviet movie podcast, on indefinite hiatus think of it very much as han solo it's frozen in carbonite maybe it's still alive but there's over 50 back episodes to check out so if you are at all interested in soviet cinema or occasionally western takes on russian subjects then that is the podcast go to i've done various guest appearances over the years i've particularly highlight a little while back i did an episode of all the best lines on ernst lubitsch's fantastic uh 30s satire ninochka just so so wonderful i was uh front of mind as i as i just watched his um shop around the corner for the first time uh earlier in the week so it reminded me of that such a brilliant film but yes so yeah you can uh Dig out my old episodes of Bruce Files Unite, and you can also find me on Letterboxd. I'm a double L Y underscore. That's that was not a great handle to choose, but that's so. If you're interested in what I'm watching, you you can uh, follow me on there. It just ends with an underscore. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. That works. They, I couldn't get Ali, but I could get Ali underscore. So that's what I went with. Mine has an underscore too. If it makes you feel better, it does. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> No underscore for me. I think I'm on there as Impossible Funky. If if I know me, that's my handle on there. <laughs> Mine is uh, death underscore bed because I am a big fan of the film Deathbed. And I'm also terrible at picking internet handles, which are it's usually I just default to my own name, which is very boring. Oh, I'm so bummed to hear about George Barry. I, he's local. He was like 20 minutes away from me and I was trying to set up an interview and it just didn't work. And now he's gone. Yep. Another great piece of surrealist cinema. Well, thank you so much folks for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. 
Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Редактор 